We covered the hard lecture last night, the historical lecture yesterday afternoon, and now we get to the scary lectures. <laughs> I saw some people yesterday with their hands in their faces, their faces in their hands or whatever, and I, I was thinking, you, you don't know yet. <laughs> the, I'm wearing the shirt that was given to me for this particular session, maybe against better judgment, because we're talking about groomer schools. This is the groomer schools session. I mean, formally we're talking about Marxian contentization, that's a lot of syllables, it means groomer schools. And so what we're gonna talk about here, we've talked about the theft of education and that the facilitator of the theft of education was a Marxist religious revival that critical pedagogy or the education theory rooted in critical theory has enabled, that's what we dealt with last night and yesterday. And what we're gonna talk about now is how we have a process of thought reform, that schools have been stolen from your children so that they can be turned into thought reform or thought forming centers to train them up as Marxists. And that is the intention. That is why I call them groomer schools, despite the obvious sexual connotations of the word. I call them groomer schools because they are doing cult grooming uh, predominantly. And it turns out there's a bit of a handshake agreement between the cult groomers and the sexual groomers. And that seems to be the case in virtually every cult across time. And there are particular reasons why that happens within Marxist cults over the last century. So what you should be kind of keeping in the back of your mind throughout this session is that we're thinking of education now as a form of thought reform. That's what they have done. They stole education so that they could turn education into a mode of thought reform. And thought reform is a formal uh, psychological term. The other day at the Moms for Liberty conference, a couple of weeks ago, I gave a talk roughly about this subject um, for about half an hour. and. I posed the question to the audience, and I'll pose this, if I remember, again at the end of this lecture. This is the kind of tone-setting question that you have to have in mind. I get asked all the time in this room already, all over the country, in room after room, facing sometimes dozens, sometimes hundreds, sometimes tens of people, sometimes just a handful of people. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And I don't know the answer to what you do. I don't know what you're capable of. I don't know what you know. There are too many of you. I can't keep track of all of you. I don't know. People say, James, what do I do? And I say, I don't know. What can you do? That's what you have to do. And what you do need to know, though, is you have to know what's going on. The stupid phrase everybody's using is you have to know what time it is. That's become very popular. But you have to know what's going on. And so I want you to sit with the following question as we proceed through the two lectures today. This question is simple. If you knew you were sending your children to Maoist thought reform camps for 35 hours a week, what would you do differently? If you were aware of the fact that you were sending your children to communist thought reform camps for 30 to 35 hours a week, what would you do differently? Because you are. If they're going to virtually any school Short of a very small number of private and charter schools, you are. Most private schools are as woke or more woke than the public schools. The public schools are virtually completely gone across the country in virtually every county. There are some variations in how bad it is. We talked earlier uh, during the Q&A session, for example, that the more money there is in a district, probably the worse it is. Vampires go where the blood is, is what I said. But education as a, as a method of Marxist thought reform or communist thought reform is what we're dealing with. That's why education was stolen so it could be replaced with something else. You've all seen the Indiana Jones 
meme that's gone around from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark where the big rock chases him down the tunnel. I think that's the right movie because Temple of Doom starts with the scene in China where they're singing Anything Goes, as it turns out. Uh, if you remember your, your important Indiana Jones history, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark begins in the temple where he's swapping out the, the golden idol for a bag of rocks or whatever, and then that didn't work. But that's what's happened, is they didn't just swipe the, uh, the, the golden object, the, the treasure of education. They tried to put a bag of Marxist rocks in its place and hoped nobody would notice. And so that means our job is to unleash the big boulder on them. So I have a little blurbs that I wrote to kind of tell the story of each of these. I'll kind of read through it and elaborate, and then we'll get into the notes. There is a process and a purpose for the theft of education, is what I said to myself here to you which is ultimately grooming in several forms at once. The objective of this grooming is to achieve thought reform that shifts all thinking into the standpoint of the oppressed. Remember we said, Pedagogy of the Oppressed is the name of Paulo Freire's landmark book, his magnum opus. I said I was gonna hit that phrase, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, standpoint of the oppressed, over and over again. Maybe I didn't do enough neuro-linguistic programming of you with that, I don't know, but standpoint of the oppressed is the goal, is to shift people into seeing the world from the perspective that Marxists believe oppressed people see it from. That's the objective. I'm not saying it's truly from a standpoint or perspective of somebody suffering oppression. It is from what Marxists believe oppression is, which is tantamount to not getting their way. Them not having their way is oppression. I made the joke, you recently saw the James Webb, Webb Space Telescope that, you know, that all came out and they took the pictures 4.6 billion light years away. I made this joke at Monster Liberty. Sorry, Monster Liberty, get to hear it twice. I'm so proud of my joke. I said that, that, that the space telescope looks 4.6 billion light years away, so immediately you see a activist pushing on physics, since people like names, Chandra Prescott Weinstein is this activist's name, writing an article saying that the telescope is homophobic and they write some article explaining why the telescope is homophobic that's obviously just a pile of BS, so their reasons don't matter. The real reason is that it's looking 4.6 billion light years out into the universe instead of directly at them, because the only thing that's acceptable is whatever's feeding them their narcissistic supply. That's the standpoint of the oppressed. The standpoint of the oppressed is the standpoint of the Marxists not getting their way. Mao called it the standpoint of the people, or the people's standpoint, as did the Soviets. So the objective of the grooming is to get, particularly now children, primarily, to see the world through the standpoint of what Marxists think oppressed people see the world as. The name in critical pedagogy for this process is conscientization. That comes from the Portuguese and Paulo Freire, conscientiza chao, um, which I had to practice saying like for a day before I could say it correctly. Conscientization is actually not easy either, it turns out, that's too many syllables. The goal of conscientization is to awaken people into the Marxist theology. That's it. That's what it means to be conscientized. You're born again, as we heard in the previous lecture, through your own personal Easter, born again into the Marxist theology. You're literally to go through a death and rebirth process onto the side of the oppressed, where you see from their perspective, as Marxists interpret it. In terms of the theft of education, conscientization is the replacement of being educated or literate with being made politically educated or politically literate, that is, being made Marxist. Awakening and rebirth are key concepts within this process, and that's what groomer schools are really about. Grooming children into this religion, into a process of dying to their old selves and being reborn as Marxists with consciousness. It is important to realize that the process of thought reform is intrinsically psychologically abusive. 
in addition to the other harms like learning loss, leading people down the primrose path or Pied Piper path to say voluntary double mastectomies or getting on um, uh, sterilizing chemicals or hormone treatments. In addition to those physical harms, it is intrinsically psychologically abusive. And what it visits on children there is something that we don't talk a lot about. We talk about the irreparable damage that we do to children in terms of what it does when they decide to undergo, say, transition. We don't talk a lot about the intrinsic mental and emotional damage we're doing to children by putting them through a Marxist grooming process, a thought reform process, what the Chinese called xinao, a brainwashing process. Xinao means literally wash brain. That's why we call it brainwashing, because that's what they called it in China and their thought reform programs. Thought reform is the psychological literature's um, formal term that they used to translate that Chinese term from those prisons. So that kind of connects into what we've been talking about quite a bit. Paulo Freire repurposed education to be about conscientization, about conscient as a child. It's the center of education for him. It's the purpose of education. It is to, uh, to raise through the generative themes into the codification, decodification process. It's to awaken a conscientization into a political literacy where you learn to read the politics, you learn to problematize the politics, and you learn to identify with having been made into an oppressive state, being pushed into an oppressive state, or being into the, pressed into the role of being an oppressor by, by uh, the, the program at hand. And so, <laughs> so the conscientization process becomes the purpose of education. This is not re-education if it's happening in primary education. It is, re, it, is, it is just education. They have stolen education. That is the absolute key. What does Paulo Freire say about how central this is? He says, conscientization is viable only because men's consciousness, although conditioned, can recognize that it is conditioned. Okay, that's what makes us not animals. That's what makes us special. That's the existential scream in the, the theology of Marxism. It, we are entities that can be made aware that we are conscious, that we can become aware that we are conscious, that we are transformative subjects that can change the world. So he says, conscientization is viable only because man's consciousness, although conditioned, can recognize that it's conditioned. And what he's saying here is that the world is conditioning you. The inversion of praxis Marx talked about is happening. You have been socially conditioned to believe that you are seeing the world objectively, that you're seeing the world as it is, that you are uh, ascertaining the facts and making deductions and conclusions based on those facts, but in fact you've been socially conditioned to believe the world is the way that it is, is supposed to be the way that it is, when in fact it could be otherwise. He calls this the critical dimension of thought, this critical dimension of consciousness, being aware that you have been brainwashed already, iron law of oak projection, it never ever misses. This critical dimension of consciousness accounts for the goals men assign to, to their transforming acts upon the world because they are able to have goals men alone are capable of entertaining the result of their action even before initiating the proposed action. They are beings who project. In other words, they are beings who project their intention to transform the world into the world and thus transform it through an act of literally, if we, traced, if we had time to trace it, alchemical magic performing alchemy on the world to transform it into what we think it should be, to free the divine from the mundane, if you want. Um, that's a separate lecture. In fact, I did those lectures in Phoenix in June, so you can check those out as they come out on YouTube. Do you catch the key thing here, though? You're already being brainwashed, so we're justified in brainwashing you. Critical 
dimension of consciousness equals believing you're already being brainwashed by society, and therefore you have to break free of it, which justifies them in engaging in a brainwashing process. That, for Paulo Freire, is the point of so-called education. That is why he uses the generative themes method that goes into the codification, decodification that drove the poor Nigerians that they tested it on nuts, made them into emotional wrecks who are no longer interested in learning, just like your kids won't be interested in learning if they make them crazy about politics, think that, make them think that that's what really matters. So basically everything happening in education today is conscientization posing as education. Culturally relevant, responsive, sustaining teaching, any of those, that's conscientization. Social emotional learning is literally the brand name and uh, psychologically infused and weirdo new age spiritualist infused method of uh, brainwashing students while claiming to attend to things that are more important than their academic uh, outcomes. The belief in conscientization, just like the belief in Frarian uh, education is that if you just take care of the, say, social-emotional issues, if you take care of the political issues, if you raise that literacy instead, that the other learning will take care of itself, which is obviously false. And we see, for example, like the stats in Providence, Rhode Island, which are a bit extreme, 6% numerate at grade level, 14% literate at grade level, and nationwide it's fluttering around one-third of students are one or the other in any given grade level. So before, we, I've got another Freddy quote, I wanted to jump straight into the fun groomer thing. Um, I want you guys to understand though, I said this in the previous lecture, American taxpayers have been completely defrauded by this bait and switch, by this theft of education. We have been defrauded. We should be treating the situation as though our children have been robbed and we've been defrauded in order for it to occur. And we should be pressuring, increasingly pressuring people with power, legislators, et cetera, to and eventually even state um, attorneys general and executive officials to start to recognize that a gigantic fraud has taken place with tremendous amounts of damages and that the people who did it are identifiable People who can be, people, there are people who can be held accountable and that this is an absolutely necessary step in A, transforming us out of their transformational system or getting us out of their transformational system and B, uh, restoring trust in the education system, which we thought until the past maybe two to three years we could generally trust to send our kids to for 30 to 35 hours a week, every week. Um, so what does Friday say about this, about conscientization? Conscientization always involves a constant clarification of what remains hidden within us while we move about in the world, though we are not necessarily regarding the world as the object of our critical reflection. So it's a constant state of awareness that they're trying to induce in place of being educated. And that's the, that's the fundamental theft of education that we've been talking about throughout the entire workshop. But we have to address the elephant in the room. I'm wearing my fancy OK Groomer shirt. Grooming has obvious sexual connotations. I've been pressed at tremendous length by journalists from Washington Post, Daily Dot, Media Matters people didn't bother talking to me, so they just wrote a hit piece on me, which that's fine, that's what they do. They want to ask, and they ask again and again, and I get pressed again and again, are you accusing people of being pedophiles without proof that they're pedophiles? The Washington Post reporter asked me that directly, and I said, no, I'm not. I strongly suspect that we will find lots of evidence of that happening because we are opening the door. We are making children comfortable with the idea of talking about sex and sexuality with adults who are not their parents and in fact who are encouraging them to hide those conversations from their parents. So 
This is the kind of environment that predators will flock to. That is not to say that your typical teacher or even your typical implementer of this agenda is necessarily a pedophile in the sense that you have to worry about. They are engaging in the kind of thing that breaks down the barriers to where when another teacher who might be a predator or another authority figure in the school who might be a predator starts to break down those barriers again, they see no cause for alarm. We already talk about that kind of stuff. It's normal. Why would I tell my parents? They don't have to ask me to hide it. We already talk about that stuff. So they're in a sense desensitizing for actual groomers. And those people are frankly opportunists. We call them predators frequently for a reason. And so there's this kind of, on one hand, some level of handshake agreement between the two strategies, Marxism and um, sexual sexualization of children, and maybe even the sexual abuse of children, broken people help communists. But on the other hand, there doesn't need to be a handshake agreement, so we don't need to accuse where there is no accusation to make. Um, there is the uh, mere fact that by introducing programs like comprehensive sexuality education, as they do, that you make it easier for predators to fit into the situation, take advantage of the situation, be unidentified as they enter the situation, and go undetected for longer in the situation. So you will find that they are, I guess, co-constituted, to use a fancy word that I've stolen probably out of context from their literature that they use all the time. I did four podcasts, a series of four podcasts on the issue of groomer schools. I touch upon the complexity of the difference between the pedophiles and the cult groomers and how they go hand in hand, how they have co-constituted strategies and uh, advantage from one another, and how it's not actually the main thing that's going on. Um, it's useful to the left that we forget. Everybody remembered until, say, five months ago or ten months ago that the word groomer does refer to cult grooming, it refers to political grooming. You know, we would even say that, you know, maybe so-and-so politician took a staffer under his wing and groomed him to be the next so-and-so, the next Speaker of the House. This was common parlance until literally like five minutes ago when all of a sudden it's only been condensed down to pedophiles so that the left can distract from the fact that it's primarily doing cult grooming in the schools, in sex, sex, uh, sex gender, and sexuality-based topics, and so that they can hide behind the fact that they, that they can insinuate that we are, by calling this out, accusing the so-called broad coalition, LGBTQIABS community, of being pedophiles without uh, substantial grounding for that. And so it's very useful that we forget that this word has two at least significant connotations that both apply here. And the main one is the cult conscientization, the cult grooming. The accessory, as horrible as it is, not to downplay that, is the sexual grooming. And we should be very clear about that. Um, we have to realize that comprehensive sexuality education is taught generatively. They say that it's taught generatively, which means that means they have to come in and introduce the concepts of sex, gender, and sexuality and make that comfortable for children to talk about with people outside of their uh, immediate family, their parents in particular, um, with other adults. And like I said, that creates an open door and a very difficult smoke screen to see through for when these kinds of abuse cases, which are now coming out kind of one, no, not one after another, hundreds after another in the media, which nobody should be surprised about. Just like vampires go where the blood is, predators go where the prey is, and that's just what you would expect. So protecting children from Sexual groomers requires having very robust 
uh, policies and procedures and curricula that don't open the door or throw up a smoke screen that makes them harder to find. They should be easier and easier to find and protect children from if we're gonna be sending our kids to these schools and having them spend lots of time with these other adults. So sexual grooming is occurring at alarming rates, but cult grooming is the primary thing happening. And that quote, cult grooming is into what we might call woke Marxism broadly and into queer Marxism, and that's the more concerning part specifically, which, like I said, creates that revolving door. But we're gonna be, I'm, I'm lingering on this because I wanna be very clear that there are two things happening. They're trying to pigeonhole us as accusing, they're, they're making a literally homophobic statement uh, by accusing us of saying that we're accusing LGBT people of being intrinsically pedophiles, which we are not doing. We're accusing them of inducing our children into a cult that has that as one component that leads to the open door possibility for sexual assault and sexual predation that we have every reason and every right to protect our children from above almost anything else. So since we touch on queer theory, I did a brief primer on queer theory last night. I told you it's a Marxist theory of normalcy, of normalcy, normalcy, that's not a word. It attacks that which is normative by definition, anything that's normative, anything that's established, anything that's um, considered normal in society is what it sets itself openly in opposition to. That's David Halperin's definition in the famous paper where he writes that queer is an identity without an essence. So if you were to give somebody's identity a concrete definition, queer is set up in opposition to that. This is where we start talking about the psychological harm to children that we don't talk about enough, the irreparable psychological and emotional damage you do to children, because this is not appropriate, even frequently for adults, but certainly not for people who are going through child development. Their brains are still developing. We've all seen, everybody who has kids knows how when they're really little, they like will scream that they are a boy. They are a girl. They're super rigid, super concrete about it. And they're super rigid in what their roles are. The left or the Marxists believe that you're socialized into believing that. And we're doing a tremendous harm to children by socializing them into believing that. What they're actually doing in brain development terms is learning to categorize the world with the most concrete and immediate categories to their lives, which turn out to be adult versus child and male versus female. So they're form forming a four quadrant uh, grid of man, woman, boy, and girl. And that's their first primary categories that they learn to start classifying things into so they can do the classification process that's going to allow them to make sense of the world as they grow up. So you are instilling their education through querying these categories for them in the key developmental periods, you are stealing from them their ability to form those categories stably, which will lead to personality disorders as they get older. In fact, I believe the point of critical theory at this point, after having read enough Marcuse and Freire, is specifically to induce personality disorder so that the people you are doing that to don't know how to live outside of a socialist world. They absolutely cannot function. In other words, they have a psychopathology that they cannot engage in the processes of daily life without having uh, basically being given their way, the way that they think that the world is gonna be. You induce them with, uh, with environmental stuff, the climate change. You tell them that it's an existential crisis, they have no future, the world's gonna die in 10, 10 years, 12 years, whatever. The beaches are all gonna be underwater. There's gonna be droughts and starvation, all these terrible things, fires, you show them on the news, look at how bad climate change is, how dangerous it is, and you make them believe it's an existential crisis so that they, we're in a world they cannot live in unless they become climate activists. 
It's existential for them. You do the same thing that it's a social world. It's so unjust. It treats people that you're supposed to care about so much. The most vulnerable people, it treats them with such unfairness, such cruelty. And you get them worked up to where they can't live in a world that doesn't have justice, that doesn't have what they call justice and they call peace. Queer praxis specifically goes after children because they are so impressionable and because this is so important. To the point where, if you listen, I, I said I did a four-podcast series on groomer schools. The first of those podcasts talks about the long history of sexuality education under Maoist, or Marxist, not Maoist, um, regimes. They understand the power of, say, sexual liberation, especially in children, or sexualizing children. We'll talk more about that later. The second of those actually goes through a paper um, on the destruction of childhood innocence, and in fact, revisiting early childhood development psychology and querying it so that we no longer have a field of developmental psychology rooted in evidence that says that this is psychologically and emotionally damaging to do to children. That's horrible. That is beyond horrible. Again, we talk about the mastectomies, we talk about the genital mutilation, we talk about the hormones, we talk about the chemical castration and the physical irreparable damage that the trans thing does, but we don't talk about the irreparable emotional and mental damage that this entire attempt to redefine early childhood education and early childhood psychological development theories in terms of queer theory does to children when put into practice on them. Their goal is explicitly to overcome the barrier of what they call the narrative of childhood innocence. They say that childhood innocence is in fact a ideological narrative created by the people who consider themselves normal so that children are protected from learning about other ways other than the straight heteronormative cis normative, et cetera, whatever their words are, uh, worldview, so that they will be more likely to, to, to suppress any queerness that they have, where queerness means actually something they can utilize in a generative way to turn them into political activists and psychologically broken people. And I say turn them into psychologically broken people, and I urge you to recall that I'm talking about your children, and I'm talking about their agenda with your children. That's what queer theory is really about or almost. There's one other point, and I think I mentioned it last night, to queer theory. What is a woman? If you can't define what a woman is, you need somebody to tell you what a woman is. What does it mean to be straight? Well, they're straight people if you read their literature. They're sometimes a little bit gay, but they call themselves straight. They identify straight, but sometimes they have a little bit of gay, but they're still straight. So straight is a complicated category, which means you can't answer the question, what is straight? You need somebody to tell you. If you're dealing with children who are basically going through the process of learning to categorize the world and you make it so they can't learn to categorize the world and they have to defer to an expert, to an authority who will tell them how to categorize the world, they aren't going to be able to categorize the world for themselves as they grow up at all. They're never going to develop this skill adequately. Everything will remain, will remain too complicated and everything will have to defer to the expert that's going to tell them what is a woman, what is a man, what is straight, what is gay, who am I really, what am I supposed to do? Oh, I have to be politically active for it to count? Okay, I'm an activist. That's the real point. It is a tremendous power grab. The ultimate decentralization of power is that you as a thinking, rational individual with senses can detect the world and make conclusions about it that nobody can take away from you. That is the ultimate decentralization of power. This is the opposite of that. You can't understand the world for yourself. It's too complicated. We don't even know what the most basic categories of man, woman, adult, and child are. And I mean it, adult and child. They will be blurred. They are being blurred. From the very first queer theory paper, 
The very first one, Thinking Sex by Gail Rubin in 1984, she talks about cross-generational sexual relationships and how stigmatized they are. She talks about how it's an outrage that there's a child porn panic banning child porn in, 19, in the 1980s, that this is a gigantic conservative push to form a moral panic. What words are we hearing today about the pushback against groomer schools? The right is instituting a moral panic. It's another moral panic after the moral panic about CRT. It's not real, it's a moral panic. We have mass formation psychosis. We have to doubt what we see with our eyes and ears, and then the more impressionable young people seeing that we are being called out and being considered wrong, don't know how to make heads or tails of the world, and they have to choose an authority, family, or teacher. The teacher has the right answers on everything else. Mom can't even, can't even help me with my math homework because they're doing math in some weird way that nobody in the world would actually try to teach somebody to do math. I'm a big fan, by the way, of what they teach in the Common Core Math program after they've learned the algorithmic ways and get the sense of it. Then you can come back in high school and teach them the conceptual ways, the intuitive ways. But they have to understand the mathematics at an algorithmic and rote level first. They have to have the skills to get the comprehension. As somebody who studied martial arts for 25 years, you have to practice the skills where if you tried to go get in a fight with them, you'd get punched right in the face before you get the comprehension that allows you to fight. You have to get the skills to do mathematics before you can come to the comprehensive or comprehension-based, you know, oh, well, what is multiplication? Well, it's a grid of this and a grid of that, and then you add the pieces together. Oh, that's the distributive property. Okay, here's what it looks like geometrically. That's later. And I'm a big fan of coming back to that later after they master the basic skills of being able to do it. Big fan of it. Not before. Not backwards. But that prevents you, mom, dad, from helping your kid with math homework because you have no idea what this thing is that they're doing, how complicated it is, so they have to defer to the authority that's not you, you can't even help them with their math homework. The teacher, the teacher knows how, you don't. This is a whole program to separate the parent from the child, or really the child from the parent. Now, as far as the groomers, the sexual stuff goes, this is the topic primarily of the first of the Groomer Schools podcast that I did. The sexualization of the youth is of crucial importance to the Marxists over the last century. They figured it out in the 1920s, George Lukács and the Hungarian re regime. I'll spell George for you because everybody doesn't know how to spell it. It is G-Y-O with an umlaut, R-G-Y. George Lukács, L-U-K-A-C-S. So George Lukács was a Hungarian Marcus. We can thank Hungary for his, the spelling of his name. Uh, <laughs> he's a Hungarian Marxist and he was the deputy commissar of education in the short-lived Soviet regime in 1919. Turned out it only lasted four months, partly because as deputy commissar of education, he instituted comprehensive sexuality education as the modern parlance goes. He started sexualizing the children and the parents freaked out and fought back and kicked the commies out of Hungary because nobody wanted their kids sexualized. That was, a, that was a line they couldn't cross, the uncrossable line. Advantage us in the 21st century because they crossed the line before they had power. And parents are awake. But why did he do this? What in the world did he do? He realized something very important. George Lukács realized something very important is that sexuality is extremely powerful. It's ex an extremely powerful force. It will really warp somebody's head. I don't know whether he hoped to destabilize the self of children, but it does destabilize the self. It induces personality disorders, schizoid personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, all follow from this. Generalized anxiety disorder and perhaps even par paranoid personality disorder can follow from all of this. 
Depression can follow from this. Whether he knew that it destabilizes itself and thus makes a moldable individual, that I don't know. But what I do know is that he did understand that it will cause the child to go home, say outrageous things to their parents. Their parents will say, that's not the way. And they'll say, you don't understand. You don't get it, Dad. Things are different. Things are different now. That's the old way. That was oppressive. We're not doing that. It's different for me. And they are tapping into an urge so powerful that it will break the bond between child and parent from the child's end. He also realized that it will cause the parents to react and say, but our faith says this. In Genesis, it says we are made man and woman. Well, that's a patriarchal, outdated book. That's all you have to tell the kids. Prime them for it. Bible's obsolete. Whatever faith tradition, doesn't have to be Christianity, obsolete. We're not doing that anymore. That's the old world, out with the old, in with the new. If you want to sever the tie, George Lukács being a key figure in the early cultural Marxist movement, if you want to sever the tie between family and faith, one generation to the next, and in fact self, to make somebody a moldable activist, pulling on the urge of their sexual libido and their personal identity, you sexualize children. And I talk about that at length in that episode of the podcast. Herbert Marcuse, I talk about him as well, expanded upon this idea. His 1955 book is called Eros and Civilization. Eros like erotic. Uh, and so he talks about the point of sexual liberation and the power of sexual liberation and the necessity of sexual liberation in order to free man from his oppressive condition. He's agitating and saying that the morality, the prevailing morality of society, the values of, morality, of, of society are oppressing people. They're launching them into categories of behavior, expectations, and norms of behavior that hold them back from true experience of life, a full experience of life from the pleasure principle that they may wish to indulge in. Uh, and want to pursue. In fact, in this book, he also mentions, since we're pointing out that again and again that this is a religion, he actually says that the goal is to get back into the Garden of Eden and the access to that is to take a second bite of the fruit of tree of knowledge. And he's talking largely about sexual liberation as what that second bite of the fruit of the tree of knowledge looks like. There's another character I've only read in limited fashion because he's totally bonkers and he's hard to read, Wilhelm Reich who wrote extensively, he wrote a book called The Sexual Revolution. You can read it for yourself and just see how horrific this is. There's this long history though of Marxists playing around with the idea of uh, sexualizing the population, sexual liberation, sexualizing women and sexualizing children in order to destabilize them in order to get the revolution, to get them to be so agitated and so stuck in their ways, of, uh, so stuck in their, their feeling that they're being held back from who they could really be and what they could really have in life uh, by the morality of the era so that they'll throw off their old values, they'll throw off their old culture and adopt a whole new one that's promising them everything that they want, the so-called Garden of Eden um, that we could get back into. A lot of this is rooted, I only know a little bit about this, so I don't want to go off into it, but a lot of this is rooted, they don't cite this guy, but in the writings of Marquis de Sade, I don't know if that's pronounced Marquis de Sade or Marquis de Sade, actually that's where we get the words uh, sadism, um, which we all know what that means. Uh, he wrote a book called The um, Philosophy, is that right? No, The Ideology of the Bedroom. No, Philosophy of the Bedroom uh, in the 1700s. He was a French pornographer, and the story is, it's a fiction. It's actually a story where these libertines who have a philosophy of sex, complete sexual liber liberalization or uh, liberation, I should say, of society, lure in a teenage girl and start grooming her into sexual perversity quite explicitly. Um, and these people, it seems, read this guy, but they don't cite the fact that they've read this guy. Uh, and the goal was to completely overthrow the existing society. He was kind of considered 
a very Joker-like figure uh, in, in France. He ended up in jail a bunch of times. What a big surprise. And the manifestation of these things today is the fourth episode of the Dr Groomer Schools podcast, which is Drag Queen Story Hour. And I go through an entire paper called Drag Pedagogy. If you want to know, the last sentence of that paper is that they intend, they say, their sentence, their words, to leave a trail of glitter in the carpet that you will never get out. The carpet, by the way, is your children's psyches. They're going to leave their drag queen glitter there. They say in the paper a number of things. They say that the point of Drag Queen Story Hour is to be a generative method to lead children into asking questions, focusing on themselves, and because the drag queen is, even if the person is not, but I think it probably always is, um, even if the person is not, the performance of drag is in fact a raging narcissist. It's all self-oriented. And so they're trying to present this to the children to make the center, they say this repeatedly in the paper, that the center is the performer. So your kids become foils to this um, highly sexualized clown, uh, man dressed as a woman. So they'll ask questions like, why are you dressed as a girl? And the drag queen might answer, does it matter if I'm dressed as a boy or a girl? And this is with your kindergartner. You can see pictures of these where the kids are visibly horrified. Actually, it's clear that they're very uncomfortable, but that's generative. And the goal, they say, is in fact only strategically marketed as to induce LGBT empathy, and it is in fact to lead them to focus on themselves in the effort to hopefully get them to, and I quote, in italics, live queerly. Get your children to live queerly. Queerly is a political statement. It is not a particular sexuality. It is an adoption of a political orientation against all norms and normalcy in society. That is the point of Drag Queen Story Hour in the words of the drag queens themselves that write it and that do it. And then they wrote, this is written by Lil Miss Hot Mess, who's written a number of children's books that I'm sure are in the database. Uh, for example, um, the hips on the drag queen go swish, swish, swish. And you can hear the song in your head. And that's what this clown performs in front of children, that song among others, which are just rewritten children's tunes that we're all kind of familiar with. That's from Wheels on the Bus, by the way, is the tune to that horrific mess. They say in this paper also that Drag Queen Story Hour is presented as family friendly. They say that, yeah, maybe families and such, parents, grandparents, etc., will feel welcome at the performances. They may want to come and have fun with the children and connect and see it. It's, oh, it's fun, it's funny, it's a clown, hi, everybody's having a good time. But then they say, but when we say family friendly, we don't necessarily mean that. We mean the family that the queer person leaves their home to find on the street. That's cult grooming. Leave your family and join our family. That's cult grooming. That's literally the definition of cult grooming. And that's what they say in the paper. An academic paper published in Cur Curriculum Inquiry last year, what they say is the point of Drag Queen Story Hour. So the whole point of Drag Queen Story Hour, like I said, is to get, or any of this other sexuality education, is to raise the question. It's to bring up sex and sexuality and gender as generative themes. The gender-bred person in your kid's class, the gender unicorn, these cartoonish characters they present to them are there to get them to raise the question, why are you dressed like a girl? What, you know, you mean if I feel different inside then maybe I'm a boy? instead of a tomboy as a girl. I just saw an article the other day that tomboy has a long history of being racist. What does that mean? They're trying to demonize the idea of tomboys so that these girls who feel a little boyish feel even more pressure that they're somehow a bad person for who they are. But guess what they could do? They could transition and get out of that. 
This is running hand in glove with the entertainment industry. If they're watching sexual themes in their cartoons, they might ask their teacher or talk about it with their teacher, or those movies might be, oh, we're gonna watch a Pixar movie and movie day at school. And then the sexual themes are introduced and then the class has to have a conversation about them. And so the teacher as facilitator, as Paulo Freire had it, will then lead that discussion. And if that particular teacher has the intention to bring them into this queer theory or queer Marxist mentality about sex, gender, and sexuality or other issues, then they will use that initiation point to do that. And I said in high schools, at least in California, they're teaching about pornography because the high schoolers are clearly going on the internet and finding it. So the schools have to be the ones to help them make sense of the world. And that is the fundamental question. Another fundamental question this entire lecture needs to revolve around again and again and again. Is it the job of the schools to do any of this? And since when is it the job of the schools to do any of this? And how did it become the job of the schools? And the answer, and we'll talk about this in the next lecture more, is that they started to say that, well, there are certain kids that are at risk, so their parents and their home life isn't going to give it. So somebody should, and the school should, and now the schools can give it to everybody because maybe everybody's at risk in some way or another. This didn't just happen, by the way. In 2004, I think, but it might be two or three, the United Nations started to do comprehensive sexuality education guidance. It's extremely explicitly the same things we're seeing in the schools now. It's based in feminism, gender theory, and queer Marxism or queer theory. And it has been the guidance and all of the participating nations are supposed to be pulled in that direction uh, over time. But of course, Western nations are going to have to do it first. And so the pressure is extremely high on countries like the United States, the NATO countries, et cetera, to go along with this program. And you can bet that that's where they're getting a lot of their uh, instruction, a lot of their ideas. They're handing out materials, they're passing down materials um, through entities like UNESCO which is committed entirely to inclusive policy. So LGBT and mentally ill inclusion in schools is a key policy procedure there, or policy point there. The federal government of the United States is playing along very significantly for whatever set of benefits the United Nations is giving it in exchange. This goes all, it's not your local school. It's not your teacher necessarily. It might be, but it's probably coming not even from the federal government, from, but from the top, from entities like UNESCO. Uh, international, gigantic international so-called governance organizations that nobody voted for that we all have to pay attention to apparently because of some BS that doesn't make any sense. Again, the point is to destabilize kids. That's what the sexual, the queer Marxist grooming part is for. It is a war on stability. If we go back to the 1960s, we see what the critical Marxists were writing about. What they realized was that there were these various forces, in particular advanced capitalism, that were causing people to become stable. The working class had become stable. They complained about the working class becoming stable and saying, we need a new working class. Who's the, who's the they? Herbert Marcuse says that explicitly throughout the SN liberation explicitly over and over again. He says it in Repressive Tolerance in 1965. Obliquely, he says it in One Dimensional Man in 1964, a book that sold hundreds of thousands of copies even in the 1960s. He says it over and over and over again. The working class has been made stable. Max Horkheimer, another critical Marxist of huge significance, says it too. 
the capitalism doesn't immiserate the worker. It gives them a good life. It makes them stable. These guys realized that when you have stability, you have people who want to keep the stable life that they have, so they become conservative. In other words, they specifically become counter-revolutionary. And that is what they have to break down. When we progress forward into the queer Marxist age, post-1984, when Thinking Sex was written, what we realize is that, well, maybe they can't overcome this economic stability problem so well, but they can overcome psychological stability. So you have to prevent people from being psychologically stable. You have to keep them in constantly on their toes. You have to hit them kind of with psyops after psyops. But if you can make sure the children are never stabilized, they're always ready to go do political activism because they think they live in a world they can't cope with. And the only thing that they know how to do to deal with the world they can't cope with is, as the saying goes, scream at the sky. We all saw the Trump election and people falling on their knees and literally yelling at the sky or showing up and doing political activism, or showing up by the millions in communist organized marches that looked like they weren't communist organized marches, like the Women's March, the so-called Science March. All they know to do is show up when George Floyd dies and start throwing bricks at buildings, changing their social media profile, bullying anybody who doesn't go along, cutting off their family ties, specifically around that incident and others. That's the goal, is to make sure there is no psychological stability. So they talk a lot about, we talk, like I said earlier, we talk a lot about physical harm. We have to pay attention to the irreparable mental and emotional harm we're doing to our children as well. We're talking personality and disorders being induced that will take years and years and years of therapy if they can ever be resolved to be resolved. So we're destabilizing children, waging a relentless war on stability. That's one of their goals with this sexualizing children agenda. Secondly, we are severing relationships with the family so that they don't, and even with friends, so they don't have a grounding outside of the cult. Uh, this is literally a part of the cult transition process, the cult induction process. And thirdly, it is to sever relationships to their religion in prevailing culture so that you can out with the old, in with the new, by getting the whole new generation to want to reset the culture that they live in to something different. And so they target children, childhood innocence, which is a narrative used to protect children from that uh, not all children benefit from it. You have innocence privilege or whatever. Not all the, within critical race theory, it's an aspect of white privilege that white kids don't have to grow up thinking about race where everybody else does. That's an aspect of white privilege. It's an aspect of male privilege that you don't have to grow up worrying about what it's like to be a vulnerable woman. It's an aspect of straight privilege to not have to be considered a freak or a weirdo or get bullied for being different or whatever else. So childhood innocence is reserved for some children but not others, and therefore that's an imbalance that has to be made equitable. So let's just make sure that nobody has childhood innocence is their solution because equity always equalizes downward, never upward. Sales pitch is up, reality is down every single time. How this works, I've already hinted out. This is literally what I would call the Maoist identity funnel. If you demonize some identities and you tell them that they can resolve the conflict of being a bad identity by joining some political project or doing some activity, then you can create not just a social contagion situation with, say, gender dysphoria, but a pressure pump that pushes them in that direction. This war on tomboys that I just mentioned is an example of that. They want young girls who feel a little boyish, maybe, or like sports, or want to go catch frogs, or whatever it is. They want to wear jeans instead of dresses. They don't like how they feel in a skirt, whatever it happens to be. They want little girls to feel, if they like to play sports in like blue color instead of pink colors, that they want them to feel uncomfortable, that maybe they're participating in racism, and therefore they have to get out of being 
a tomboy and the only avenue out is to become non-binary or some other queer identity or trans identity. And so they open up this uh, avenue to resolve tension that they're creating, that they're manufacturing, rather than a message of acceptance. And as a matter of fact, the Groomer Schools 2 podcast, I cover this paper about childhood innocence written by this scholar, Hannah Dyer, and um, there's a program by a gay man that came out some years ago, so a couple decades ago. I'm not exactly sure if it was 90s or early 2000s, called It Gets Better. It was made by Dan Savage. It actually got a lot of press. It was quite famous. I think it's actually a brilliant program that we should be telling kids, regardless of if they're dealing with LGBT stuff or whether they're dealing with the pressures, the, the injuries of the COVID era, whatever it happens to be, uh, the challenges of growing up, the challenges of growing up in this weird, difficult time because we're having a communist revolution foisted on us, to tell them it gets better. Don't stress out. Suicide's not really what you need. It's going to get better and you're going to see. And Dan Savage was really clear. Look, he just accepts the fact. You're probably going to be bullied for being different. It's not going to be easy as you're a child, but it's going to get better. And because you had it harder, you're going to come out better for it. And this really strong message of resilience. And so Hannah Dyer spends about a third of the paper, a quarter of the paper, carpet bombing it gets better. She doesn't want children to think it gets better. She says it's not about, in fact, making stable LGBTQ identities. Her whole queer initiative in early childhood education and psychological development is in fact to make sure that those identities stay fluid. You don't want children thinking it gets better, you want children thinking that they have to take political activism to change the entire system so that it will be different. That's what you want them to do. And this is exactly what Mao Zedong did in China in his cultural revolution starting in 1966. Um, it went on until 76 when he died. And so what did he do? He categorized the population into 10 different identities. These were broadly good and bad or black and red as he put it. Red is for communism, so that's the good one. Could probably bring critical race theory to bear on this if we wanted to. It's probably racist somehow. I think the black is for fascism, but I don't know. The black identities, he said, were landlord, rich farmer, counter-revolutionary, bad influence, and right-winger. Those are the bad categories. If you had one, so did your kids. So he was revolutionizing the kids in the school. The good identities were the laborer with their hammers, and the peasants with their sickles, and the revolutionary activists, the revolutionary cadres, and the revolutionary martyrs. So if you die for the cause, if your parent, if you died for the cause, your kids get glory, more or less. And so the goal was to basically treat the kids with the black identities badly, probably for something their parents were doing, like being rich, and you give them a pathway to give, making them have a positive identity. Probably not going to turn them into laborers or peasants, but you can get them to become revolutionaries. You can get them to join the revolutionary red guard. That's your revolutionary cadres. You can get them to rat out their parents. You can get them to challenge their other teachers who aren't on board. And that's what they did. They turned on their teachers. They turned on their parents. They turned on their grandparents. They dragged them out into the street and humiliated them. Struggle session. They went and desecrated temples. They went and desecrated schools. They went and desecrated any emblems of the old culture, of the four olds, as Mao called them, that had to be destroyed. Those four olds were old culture, old customs, old habits, and old ways of thinking. Those all had to be destroyed to bring in the new communist world. And I've seen the posters, on, the murals on the walls of, Be of buildings in Beijing that show a bunch of apparently communist-looking happy people, kind of that Chinese-style Soviet realism art style. You can picture it in your head, and it has a bunch of Chinese characters under it that translate to things like man, woman, boy, girl, we are all, we are all the same. 
I've seen the murals myself. They're still there in some places in Beijing. Um, the goal, though, was to pump kids into the positive identities. We're doing this with critical race theory and queer theory as a one-two punch. Critical race theory is much less interesting. You just want kids to feel bad about their race that they can't do anything about. And then you give them the chance to resolve that tension by adopting a queer identity and becoming a queer activist with a destabilized personality is the goal, with a likelihood of severing from their family, with a likelihood of severing from their religion and broader culture and history, thinking all of that is terrible and oppressive and old and outdated and obsolete, and that their parents just don't get it. Their parents are part of the problem. New, new world for a new generation. That's the goal, and it's ripped straight from Mao. So the third episode of the Groomer Schools podcast covers that in greater detail, how that works. But it's a CRT to queer theory pipeline. What we're seeing is not merely people being free to be who they are. So the rate, rates of especially young white girls becoming trans and young Hispanic men becoming trans goes flying up. There's also a social pressure. And on top of the social pressure, there is also this um, activist pump to demonize certain aspects of their being that they can't do anything about so that they are funneled into something they can do something about, which leads to irreparable mental, emotional, and physical damage to the children while creating absolutely inconsolable activists um, who are, in a sense, they call them change agents, but chaos agents is the correct word, tearing apart families, tearing apart churches, tearing apart communities, tearing apart the old aspects of society so that you can have your Marxist revolution. Because if you want to have a Marxist revolution, you have to destroy the old cultural hegemony and bring in a new one. The counter-hegemony has to be able to come in and take its place. So that's how you do it. So allyship and political activism are supposed to be are provided as resolutions to this tension with critical race theory, but it's never good enough. By taking on a queer identity, you make your activism yours. You turn it into that vulnerable narcissism cycle. So it's you that's under attack. And the transformation of the world begins with the transformation of your body. I dipped momentarily last night talking about the religion of Marxism and how this is Gnosticism. Broadly speaking, Gnostics see the, the very nature of being as having been thrust into a prison. You were born into a world without your consent that doesn't serve what you want, but there's a special knowledge you can obtain about how you can free yourself and others from the prison. That's a big picture, kind of generic branding of what Gnosticism is as a philosophy, as a heretical philosophy when it attaches to a religion. And what you have here is that literally your body is the prison in the trans thing. Your body is the prison. You've been assigned to sex at birth, categorized. You didn't ask to be born. You didn't ask to be born in this body. You didn't ask to be categorized, and nobody cared how you felt. Nobody cares how you identify inside. Your so-called gender soul was not consulted. Some medical authority in the shape of a doctor or some uh, hegemonic culture or some parent caught up in that oppressive hegemonic culture assigned you an identity. Judith Butler refers to this as a violence of categorization that has been done to you. You never had a choice. Within the trans, the broader trans community, they even talk about the violence of the so-called non-consensual puberty. That you go through puberty because your body does it without your consent. So therefore you should be given puberty blockers so that you can decide when to consent to puberty and when not to. This is the level of narcissism. This is the level of reality denial that's attached to that issue. This is the level of damage that it does teaching people that they can think that the world is literally something they can transform and by doing so through transforming their bodies first and then wailing about it endlessly because what else will you be able to do? It's a disaster. 
Maoism is really, in a sense, a huge part of the model that is being applied to our society. Maoism was the first exercise in a true cultural revolution. Lenin didn't pull off a cultural revolution, he pulled off an actual physical coup. He took power, he forced power, Stalin made it worse. Something completely different happened in China. They had the revolution in 1949, Mao got chased out of power, and it was all kind of topsy-turvy through the 50s and into the 60s, and in 66, Mao wants his power back, and he comes back and he initiates a cultural revolution to get rid of even the communists who had taken power from him. And the cultural revolution is a completely different model that transforms the culture from the bottom up while you apply the top down. It rips apart the glue of society and writes a new social contract, which Mao had in his little red book, which all the kids ran around memorizing and quoting from, which is his line of sayings, both in the schools and in the broader culture through their little red book and other methods, and also in the prisons where if you went against it, you got sent. They did a technique called Shinao, brainwashing. The point of brainwashing was to change the thoughts, to change thought completely, to reform thought to be in line with the people's standpoint. The way that the people, the communist people, see the world. You see, everybody else is not the people because they aren't for the people. Only the communists are for the people. Everybody else is an individual who is for himself. And therefore, that's not acceptable. That's not the people's standpoint. You're not living in the true socialist mold that Marx said is our true human nature. So you must have had the ideology brainwash you already. So they're going to wash that out of your brain. And hence, they call it brainwashing. The goal is to learn to recognize your crimes against the people and the crimes against the state of the, the communist state uh, from the people's standpoint. And in Friday, we see this as the pedagogy of the, oppressed, of the oppressed, to see from the perspective of the oppressed. It involves three primary mechanisms. Those are interrogation, struggle, and study. And they take place in different contexts depending on your level of progression. Severe, severe when you're not progressing well, lenient and generous in a mode of speaking when you are. For example, maybe you're going to have to not, you're not confessing right, you're not doing it right, so maybe they make you sit in your prison cell getting yelled at and spit upon and not allowed to sleep while wearing chains around your ankles and weights hanging off of your wrists for days and days and days and days. And then suddenly you start to be a little more compliant and they put you in a comfortable cell with an actual bed and people generally talk to you nicely and they bring you in to study the Marxist literature and there's this alternating severity and leniency that actually breaks you down psychologically and brings you in. Then you go in front of the judge every night and you have your interrogation session for hours and they ask you questions after question. Do you see your crime? Are you going to confess? We know what you did and we know everything. You might as well just say it. Blah, blah, blah. They're data mining you. They're getting you to confess to little things that you've done in your life, searching for any escape from the pressure they're putting on you, and then they start to twist that back against you. They're data mining you for your concrete context that they will then feed back to you in abstract form until you confess to how it was a crime. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? They're doing it through a dialogical method. You're in dialogue with the judge. They treat you when you're kind of complying quite nicely. They're quite severe when not. Then you get kicked back to your cell, which will have seven to eight other people in it, and they struggle you. Docheng is, I think, how you say it in Chinese. They struggle you. It means struggle. What they do is they sit there and they interrogate you and they tell you that you, you, you have to confess your crimes. If you confess, we're going to be able to resolve your case sooner. You're going to be able to get out of the problem sooner. We're going to take care of this. You just have to want it. You have to be honest. You aren't sincere enough. You aren't trying hard enough. And they spit on you and don't let you sleep and bully you and carry on so that you're in kind of psychological 
torment, and then alternately they're telling you, first of all, that they're helping you, and second, literally helping you, and then helping you to see it from the people's standpoint, helping you to want to confess, and then helping you to see it in the way that you need to in order to confess correctly. So what they're doing is forcing, uh, they're reinforcing what's going on in terms of thought reform in a social milieu that you become somewhat accountable and attached to. So this is where they bully you in class and send you to the Gay-Straight Alliance after school. That's what you can see there. This is where they give you a weird, awful DEI session at work where Robin D'Angelo comes in and tells you all day long how you're racist, how you've always been racist, and they get you to sit there and confess to everybody else how you've been racist and so you feel terrible. Uh, and that's your interrogation followed by your struggle session. And everybody has to take their turn confessing in front of everybody else, even if they're making stuff up or exaggerating in order to do it. And if you've read any of the stories or listened to any of the stories of people who've gone through these DEI workplace, trainings, diversity, equity, inclusion trainings, it reads exactly like this. And they say that it's horrible. I've talked to uh, gay people, trans people, Indian people, black people who have all been utterly humiliated by having to go through this. Uh, people of every race and every sexuality who have been uh, induced to confess and tell other people in the room how they've always been racist or homophobic against people like you to whoever it is that's the, the prime target. And then you have to have these courageous conversations to work it all out. That's a struggle session. It's the same thing. Then the third aspect is study. Uh, something like that in Chinese. And so what that is is reading Marxist literature so you can deepen your understanding of what you're dealing with. So that's when you go do the work. That's when you go read your Robin D'Angelo. It's not my job to educate you. You need to go read the books. You need to go read the correct authors. You need to go read the decolonized curriculum. That's what this is all about. What this is is social and emotional manipulation, and I don't use those words lightly. But I want to give you, I've talked about these, these um, thought reform prisons. I want to tell you I didn't make this up. I read this from a psychologist who studied this, uh, Robert J. Lifton. That's J-A-Y as the middle name. Uh, Robert J. Lifton, who went to Hong Kong and interviewed people there as they were exiled from China after their release from prisons, sometimes four or five days after they got out of prison in uh, mainland China in the 1950s. And he wrote this book called Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, a Study of Brainwashing in China. And I want to just, you know, we've heard a lot about Friday and what Friday thought last night. I just want to read this point to you that he makes that the whole process is one of death and rebirth. And this is how he phrases it. He's talking about two characters that he had, had, had profiled. It's like reading stuff from the Nazis, which we've all had to do, but not from the communists, which we should have to do. And he, um, they're, they're a doctor by the last name of Vincent and a priest by the last name of Luca. So both Dr. Vincent and Father Luca took, place, or took part in an agonizing drama of death and rebirth. That's how he describes it. In each case, it was made clear that the reactionary spy, that's in quotes, who entered the prison must perish, and that in his place must arise a new man, that's in quotes, a new man resurrected in the communist mold. These are the words a psychiatrist used to describe the phenomenon. Indeed, Dr. Vincent still used the phrase, quote, to die and be reborn, words which he had heard more than once during his imprisonment. Neither of these men had himself initiated the drama. So you didn't ask to go to DEI workshop. Your kids didn't ask to get put through SEL. Neither of these men had himself initiated the drama. Indeed, at first, both had resisted it and tried to remain quite outside of it. But their environment did not permit any sidestepping. They'll fire you. You'll get kicked out of school. You'll fail. You have to do this. This is just what the curriculum is, whatever it is. They were forced to participate, drawn into the forces around them until they themselves began to feel the need to confess and to reform. 
in all italics this next sentence, this penetration by the psychological forces of the environment into the inner emotions of the individual person is perhaps the outstanding psychiatric fact of thought reform. Penetration into the emotions. How do you feel? Do you think about suicide? How do you think people who were enslaved felt? How do you think LGBT people kicked out of their house felt? Let's talk about the feelings. We'll talk about the feelings. Do you think that we have really we really have freedom and equality in the United States? Well, what about freedom and equality for black people? What about freedom and equality for gay people? What about freedom and equality for women? We have this huge pay gap. Do you think that's really free and equal? How do you think that feels to have to live in a society like that? The penetration by the psychological forces of the environment into the inner emotions of the individual person is perhaps the outstanding psychiatric fact of thought reform. The milieu brings to bear upon a prisoner a series of overwhelming pressures at the same time allowing only a very limited set of alternatives for adapting to them. You have to do it the way they say. They're going to accuse you of implicit racism, implicit sexism or homophobia, implicit transphobia, all these sins against your fellow man, implicitly not caring about the fate of the world or the future of humanity, all these terrible things that you are contributing to, you are complicit to, and they give you only a small number of ways out of that tension. Well, you can transition if you don't like how your racial identity feels in your body. You can uh, become a social activist. You can show up at the state house steps in Rhode Island and lay and do a die-in for political purposes or whatever it happens to be. Only a li very limited set of alternatives for adapting to outstanding and overwhelming psychological pressures. In the interplay between person and environment, a sequence of steps or operations that is a combination of, or a combi of combinations of manipulations and response takes place. All of these steps revolve around two policies and two demands, the fluctuation between assault and leniency and the requirements of confession and re-education. The physical and emotional assaults bring about the symbolic death. Leniency and the developing confession are the bridge between death and rebirth. The re-education process along with the final confession creates the rebirth experience. You have to become an anti-racist. Death and rebirth, even when symbolic, affect one's entire being, but especially that part related to loyalties and beliefs, to the sense of being a specific person and at the same time being related to and part of groups of other people, or in other words, to one's sense of inner identity. In the broadest terms, everything that happened to these prisoners is related to this matter. So you can transition, for example, to get out of these uh, outstanding pressures or overwhelming psychological pressures put on you about your, say, racial or other identities. You can, you can become non-binary or whatever it happens to be, and what you see is, in a sense, if you actually listen to the way these people talk about it, a literal rebirth. I'm escaping the person I used to be to become a new person. Death and rebirth, death of who you were, death of your old way of being, as Freire put it, death to the elitism that you had, death to your own individual selfishness so that you can be reborn on the side of the oppressed. It's the exact same thing. Freudian education is Maoist thought reform repackaged into an educational program, usually branded social emotional learning in your kids' schools. And it's in virtually all of them. We talked about that actually in the Q&A earlier, the, the alternating stress in the classroom leading into the go to the after school clubs and if you confess or you say I think I might be pansexual or I might be non-binary or I'm going to you know try on being a, a tree or a furry or a cat or whatever it happens to be then when you go back to the classroom you get affirmed for how brave you are now we have to talk about you you are the center of attention you don't have that pressure put on you anymore the other kids don't kind of 
struggle you about why are you this, why are you that, oh, you're just a basic this. Kids are relentless bullies, and they know that they can mobilize this against each other. Mao's purposes were cultural revolution. We know that. He said it explicitly. He said it again and again. That's the solution to the problem of reproduction that he wants to overcome, is perpetual cultural revolution. What he says, Freire says, after you know, we now see that he's doing Maoist thought reform as his educational program, he says, in the face of a semi-intransitive or naive transitive state of consciousness, that those details don't particularly matter what those mean. He details a number of stages of consciousness that unfold, um, which I will not use as highly technical terms for you. I will simplify them in a moment. In the face of these particular states of consciousness among the people, conscientization envisages their attaining critical consciousness or the, quote, maximum potential of consciousness. This objective cannot terminate when the enunciation becomes concrete. In other words, when you get the new society. On the contrary, when the enunciation becomes concrete reality, so you have the new society post-revolution, the need becomes even greater for critical consciousness among the people both horizontally and vertically. Thus, cultural action for freedom, which characterized the movement that struggled for the realization of what was announced, must then transform itself into permanent cultural revolution. And he holds up Mao Zedong's cultural revolution, which had unfolded in the decades around when he was writing this, as the example of where it was being, being done right. The goal is to build a youth vanguard who can't live in the world that's not what they're being told the world should be by Marxist educators. It's not just to teach them that that world is possible, not just to teach them that that world might be preferable, it's to make them believe that they can't live in any other world and that they should absolutely be emotional wrecks and act like emotional wrecks and never emotionally mature and never learn how to solve any problems if they aren't give, being given their way by transforming the system. This is how you groom through education. This is how you steal education to make groomer schools. It's all about transforming education into political education or conscientization. Now the thing is, conscientization unfolds in stages. It's a process. Marx didn't know this. Marx thought that if you just go preach the gospel of the confession of communist faith long enough that the workers would be able to awaken to the fact they would gain class consciousness, whatever that actually means for him, and they would form together into spontaneous uh, workers' parties that would cobble together into an international workers' party that then would seize the means of production, not just in certain locales, but internationally, globally, and do a global proletarian revolution, establish a dictatorship of the proletariat that forces simulated communism on the people, or administers simulated communism on the people in the form of what they called socialism. And then the socialist state will become a communist utopia when the state is no longer necessary because people just think that's the way to be. They don't know any other way to live. So the state dissolves itself. Lenin said that that happens at the absolute pinnacle of political power and oppression. It becomes unnecessary after that, which would, if you think in terms of implications would mean when they finally fully penetrated into everybody's mind and have the absolute level of control over your very thoughts and values and beliefs and have transformed those, then they don't need a state anymore. And that's your conscientization process. Well, Marx and Lenin, turns out they didn't have it. It didn't work. You couldn't force people. You couldn't even send them to labor camps and force it to stick. Even in the Maoist prisons where Robert J. Lifton is talking about it, it only kind of sticks in the, I think it's 30-something people he ended up interviewing for that book. It only sticks in a small percentage of them. And even there, it's shaky. A lot of people came out changed. Some people came out and basically within a few weeks were more or less back to normal, except shaken by the traumatic experience of being imprisoned in a brutal 
uh, brainwashing prison for several years, usually three to five years is what foreigners were put through. So Marx thought you could just preach it and it would go. What he said is the question is not what goal is envisaged, envisaged for the time being by this or that member of the proletariat or even by the proletariat as a whole. The question is what is the proletariat and what course of action will it be forced historically to take in conformity with its own nature? That's in the Holy Family, and Lukács uses that to frame out the chapter uh, in History and Class Consciousness on class consciousness specifically. So this is what Lukács says is that Marx never told us what the answer to that question is. What is the proletariat supposed to envision itself to be? How is it supposed to be that? All we know is that it's to take conformity to its own nature, which we know is a perfectly communist nature. But he thinks that if you just hammer them with the theory that eventually they'll get it. If you just preach from the communist pulpit, eventually people will have the moment, that aha moment, and they'll convert and it'll stick. And um, Lenin thought, well, that's not working. Let's just force it on people. And that also didn't work. Mao kind of did a little bit of both, and that worked better. Uh, but what happened is in the 1920s, when Lukács is writing out this history in class consciousness, he realized, he says, maybe it's the case that class consciousness has actually graduated. Maybe there are stages to it. And he starts walking through this. It's not like this ordered, orderly bullet-pointed thing. He's a very elegant writer, to be honest with you, uh, so far as communists go. Difficult, but elegant to read. It's not a bullet-pointed thing, but he has this insanely long chapter on what class consciousness is and what it entails. And he, as I have kind of delineated it, um, he lays out seven steps. I think that Freire extends it to nine steps of conscientization. And I want to go through these with you. What are they actually walking your kids through? The goal for Marx was to get you to identify and to realize that your true identity lives in your class. Lukács is absolutely clear on this point that your true identity is your class identity. That's who you have to know yourself to be. And you're going to notice the intrinsic contradiction there. The class identity is also the thing you have to overcome in the final battle. And he will, I'll quote him on that in a minute. But the first thing you have to do, Lukács said, is you have to actually make people aware that they're in a class. The first step is class awareness. You have to be aware that you are a member of a class, that you are a working class person or you are a capitalist class person. You have to be aware that there's class society at all. So I call this class awareness as the first stage of consciousness. You're not going to take action by realizing class stratifies society or that race stratifies society or that sexuality or normalcy stratifies society. You're not going to take action based on that. It's just being aware that in fact there is an oppositional have versus have not structure to society, an upper class versus a lower class. The second is really where the versus comes in. So the second stage in conscientization is an oppression awareness. That in fact the lower class is oppressed by the upper class. You aren't just in the working class. Or you aren't just a person of color. You aren't just abnormal or queer. You are oppressed because you are that. So this is where the generative themes come in at the first stage. It's not just to make you aware that there's a class awareness that's kind of reading the situation. This is the problematizing. It's to get you to understand that you are oppressed by the circumstance. By class society's very existence, you're oppressed. The third stage, so if you're writing notes, class awareness is number one, oppressed awareness is number, or oppression awareness is number two. The third is adopting a holistic perspective. Holistic isn't just new age BS. It's not just crunchy granola, I went to Asheville, North Carolina, or Boulder, Colorado, and had a nice weekend. It's not just that. 
All of the Marxist and Hegelian view of the world is one of holism, that you can't understand the particulars without understanding how they relate to the whole. The whole and the parts are in opposition that have to be understood uh, such that they inform what one another is. A holistic perspective in terms of class consciousness or critical consciousness is that this, oppress, this oppression system is something that you are not, it's not something like there's the, the, the A's and the B's. It's, there's one thing happening. There's oppression happening and some people happen to be oppressed by it. It is a dynamic system. You aren't oppressed by and marginalized by society. You are part of a whole society in which you are being marginalized. It's one whole system. And so the opposite side of this holistic perspective isn't, oh, I'm in a class, I'm oppressed. It's I'm in a class, I'm oppressed, and they are oppressing me. There is somebody holding me down. This isn't just the way it is. This isn't just what's happening. This is where Paulo Freire is talking about awakening out of the culture of silence. This is what the more modern woke people say, um, making oppression visible. There is no marginalized without a marginalizer and without a process of marginalization that's done systemically. That's holistic awareness or holistic, adopting a holistic perspective. That's the third stage. The fourth stage is awareness that you are a historical subject. You might call it historical subject awareness if you wanted to write it down in a kind of neat and orderly way. Historical subject awareness. You, even if you are oppressed, are not silenced. You are not prevented from making history. You are an intrinsic part of making history. You have just been brainwashed not to know it. You are held in oppression primarily by, no, by being rendered in the position that you believe you can't change history, that you aren't part of that process. We read quotes from Friday last night where he says that, that they've been estranged from who they are as knowers, estranged from their ability to take part in the socio-historical process of society. That's the Marxist transformation of society in Marxist language. You've been convinced that you are not somebody who can make any change when in fact you can. You are a historical subject. You are somebody, no matter how oppressed you are, who can change the world. And so this is something that they have to induce as a consciousness. You can see this in the schools where they're starting to talk about all of the activists throughout history who have made a difference, of so the unlikely activists who rose up. They hold them up as heroes. They want you to be able to identify yourself in those heroes. And that's not intrinsically bad necessarily, except if you're framing it in terms of this Marxist marginalization wheel that they believe characterizes society, which they should have already brought you into. So the, con the consciousness that you are a historical subject, you are somebody who can change the course of history, is the fourth stage of raising a class or critical consciousness. The fifth stage is that you have to adopt a standpoint perspective. As a matter of fact, what that means is you realize that as a historical subject, you are able to have special insight into the nature of oppression because you have a special standpoint. As a black man, as a gay woman, I say blah, 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 you need to shut up and listen. When you start to believe that you have the authority to invoke your identity as a, an epistemological grounding, Chances are pretty good that you've adopted something of a standpoint perspective. The feminists in the 80s developed this tremendously, particularly Sandra Harding under the name stand, Standpoint Epistemology, to the point where Sandra Harding said that adopting an intentional bias of oppression constitutes what she called strong objectivity. 
You're not just being objective, you're being stronger than objective. True objectivity requires adopting your standpoint-based bias. In intersectionality, they call this positional awareness. They will say positionality must be intentionally engaged, which means before I can come up and speak, everything I said, you guys can all ignore, because I didn't say as a straight white man, who's obviously extraordinarily handsome, when we started, and I have, you know, I have conventional beauty privilege, I didn't say any of that, so I didn't actually acknowledge my standpoint so that I know where I have authority to speak and where I must be quiet and listen. When we go back to Gnosticism, what this is, is that oppression confers special knowledge. You can go back to Marx and say that the special knowledge of how society works is granted through the experience of suffering. Of course, religion is the opium of the people, which anesthetizes you to the nature of your suffering so that you'll never realize it. And that's why he hated religion, except his own. So after you have class awareness and you realize that class, class society creates oppression and that you probably, if you're in that class, are oppressed, though you might be a dehumanizer in the uh, advantage to a privileged class, after you realize it's a holistic, dynamic uh, whole that's, that's um, creating the oppression, there's no marginalized without a marginalizer and a process of a systemic, structural process of marginalization, and you believe the world works this way, and you become aware that you are a historical subject who can change the world, and you become aware that the way that you change the world is by adopting the experience of oppression as a, as Freire calls it, a nociological lens, a nociological attitude that's, instead of epistemology, it's Gnosticology. Nociological, they don't even hide that it's Gnosticism, by the way. After you have all of this, now you're ready to have class consciousness. Now you're ready to be class conscious, as Lukács defines it, and you're ready to actually understand what it means to be part of a class. You're already, you now realize that class solidarity is the only way you can do this. This is what Kimberly Crenshaw starts off the intersectionality famous landmark paper mapping the margins in 1991 with. It's that the disparate voices of a few have no power compared to the unified voices of millions. So if you think of yourself intrinsically that who you are is which class you belong to as a, you know, demisexual, bi-gender, half trans, I don't know, I've lost, I lost my train of thought with this stuff, then I have blah, blah, blah view. And I think in terms of solidarity with all of the oppressed people who look like me or act like me or have sex like me or whatever it happens to be, then you have class consciousness, that we are a class. And it is, as see, the, the view is that the powerful have the ability, the freedom to know, to be, to make history, whereas the oppressed have been estranged from their ability to know, to be, we heard that from Ferrari, to literally their being, or to make history, because they're disempowered, they're disenfranchised, they're oppressed. That's what oppression means. But if they come together in solidarity as a class, then they have the power to move mountains. So you have to abandon the I think in terms of the we think, as we heard Ferrari say last night, that I think is fulfilled in the we think. So class consciousness is when you realize that you as a class constitute a gigantic political block and that you have the duty and the capacity to change history to end the oppression that makes your block have a definition in the first place. If it's economic class, you're in class consciousness. That's where Lukács doesn't stop, he skips. So that's stage six. Class consciousness is finally awakened by that point. 
standpoint perspective was five if you're taking notes. So what does he do to skip forward? I'll quote from Lukács. You'll hear how elegant he is in some sense. This is a very angry part of the third chapter of History and Class Consciousness, which, by the way, the internet, I'm quoting it directly. The internet tells me I haven't read it. We must never overlook the distance that separates the consciousness of even the most revolutionary worker from the authentic class consciousness of the proletariat, the whole class, right? The authentic class consciousness isn't worker's consciousness, it's a whole class consciousness. But even this situation can be explained on the basis of the Marxist theory of class struggle and class consciousness. And then all in italics, the proletariat only perfects itself by annihilating and transcending itself by creating the classless society through the successful conclusion of its own class struggle. In other words, as long as you still think of yourself as a class, you're going to become a new oppressive class after the revolution. So the proletariat's last job, you adopt class consciousness, you seize the means of production as a class, and then you have to start working to dissolve the notion of class society entirely so that nobody knows how to identify as a class anymore. It is through the annihilation of its own and transcendence of its own class mentality that conscientization is completed for Lukács. Class consciousness leaps to true Marxist consciousness, the full transcendence of private property, the true transcendence of class society and the division of labor, the true transcendence of the self-estrangement of human beings from themselves. The struggle for this uh, the struggle for this society in which the dictatorship of the proletariat is merely a phase is not just the battle waged against an external enemy, the bourgeoisie. It is equally the struggle of the proletariat against itself, against the devastating and degrading effects of the capitalist system upon its class consciousness. The proletariat will only have won the real victory when it has overcome these effects within itself. So this is where the problem of reproduction gets born because Lukács doesn't know how to solve that. He says you get class consciousness and then you have to Get rid of it. You have to transcend it. You have to annihilate it. That's the last battle. But he never says how to do it. He tries to talk about it through, some, through the rest of the book somewhat, but he actually goes into his theories of reification and other things and never really has an answer. He starts that chapter by complaining that Marx didn't have an answer for what the class is supposed to look like and what class consciousness should entail or how to get there. He tells you how to get to class consciousness and then says, well, you have to overcome this and doesn't know how. And this is why Paulo Freire is a religious revival figure. This is where Marxism got stuck in the problem of reproduction, and Freire offers the solution. So the critical Marxists in between, so we're, history and class consciousness is 1923, Paulo Freire is 1970, that's a long time in between. We can do math and not know how many that is, 37, is that right, did I do it right? I don't know, 47, some number of years, with a seven years. Um, it's harder to do math in front of a bunch of people than you think it is, <laughs> on the spot. In that intervening time, critical Marxism grew up quite a lot. We've already heard about how Horkheimer said, you know, that we learned that, the, that capitalism doesn't immiserate the worker. We've already heard how he says that you can't describe, you can't even describe a good or ideal society in the terms of the existing society. The terms of the existing society are themselves a problem. So all we can do, he says, is criticize the existing society. We've already heard, I already talked about how Herbert Marcuse said, well, all we have to our advantage is negative thinking. But he says negative thinking has utopian potential. We shouldn't abandon the ideas of the utopia. It has a utopian potential. And he says in the essay on liberation that negative thinking will necessarily transform into something positive by virtue of the fact that by criticizing the existing society, the ideal society contained within it can emerge. And so there's this idea that if we just tear down the garbage parts of society, if we just criticize what we see in society and its existing terms, 
then we can clear the way for an ideal society to grow up out of the ashes. And that is critical consciousness, that you have to turn and attack the terms of society itself. Anywhere you see the dehumanizing processes, you criticize them. And by doing so, in Paulo Freire's words, which I just actually paraphrased, you denounce the existing world, and if you do that with critical consciousness, you intrinsically announce the possibility of a new world. This is utopian thinking, but we just heard from Paulo Freire about the perpetual cultural revolution. So stage six was class consciousness, seven is critical consciousness, which means you keep criticizing the very terms of society, of class society itself. Freire offers the bridge, which is stage eight, Utopian consciousness. He's obsessed with utopianism. And that's where you just keep denouncing and keep denouncing and keep denouncing and keep denouncing and believe that eventually you tear down everything bad and that which is good will fill, it, fill in the spaces. He says, in this sense, the pedagogy that we defend conceived in a significant area of the third world is itself a utopian pedagogy. By this very fact, it is full of hope, for to be utopian is not merely to be idealistic or impractical, but rather to engage in denunciation and enunciation. Our pedagogy cannot do without a vision of man in the world. So it's a religion. Thanks. It formulates a scientific humanist conception. It's a religion. Thanks. That finds its expression in a dialogical praxis in which the teachers and learners together, in the act of analyzing a dehumanizing reality, denounce it while announcing its transformation in the name of the liberation of man. Oh, so it has duties of conscience. Thank you. It's a religion. The First Amendment should exclude this from our schools. Let me be clear. He says it again and again. For this very reason, denunciation and annunciation in this utopian pedagogy are not meant to be empty words, but a historic commitment. Denunciation of a dehumanizing situation today increasingly demands precise scientific understanding of that situation. So only Marxist analysis will work. Similarly, the enunciation of its transformation increasingly requires a theory of transforming action. Yet neither act by itself implies the transformation of the denounced reality or the establishment of that which is announced. Rather, as a moment in a historical process, the announced reality is already present in the act of denunciation and enunciation. So utopian consciousness is that if we keep denouncing from a critical perspective, then we simultaneously, implicitly announce the possibility of something better. So when you are woke or when you are a critical Marxist, you engage in the process of problematizing everything you see, and that is utopian hope because it means that something better will emerge if you keep criticizing the terms of the existing society, which are actually the problem. Those terms are class society, whether it's racial class, economic class, sexual class, gender class, whatever. We heard him say explicitly earlier that this is in fact a uh, process that has to be perpetual. He said the second that you have the revolution, the second it becomes concrete reality, the new society, you need to have it again. Anything that becomes established must immediately be torn down again. In other words, the dialectic always moves left. It always moves left. You take the thing, you offer it. That, the thing is the conservative thing. That's what there is. That's what's being conserved. So you offer a left-wing alternative to it. You dialectically synthesize and mix them, and that becomes the new right-wing. Then you offer a new left-wing answer to that new thing. You have your revolution, now you need more critical consciousness, you need a further left position, you dialectically synthesize them, you don't get some middle position, you get the new right wing. And that's utopian consciousness. Whatever you transformed the world into is already right wing, do it again. That's utopian consciousness. 
You need to be even more critical, not less, more critical. You, be, you, you take up critical consciousness, you create change, you have to become more critical. So what do you do? You foist some crap change on the school, like restorative justice, it doesn't work. You say that the reason it didn't work was because something racist. So now you have to have another program, more money, more administrators. You need DEI consultants. You need to bring in an army of social workers who can brainwash the students. By the way, chapter five of this book, The Politics of Education, that I keep reading from from Friday, is actually about social workers who, it says, he says, are a special type of educator. That there's no real difference between social work and education. And what are they doing in the schools? They're bringing in armies of social workers now so that they can kind of skate by the fact that they're trying to do psychological manipulations of your kids without licensure, without qualification, and without therapeutic spaces. And that's exactly what they view the educational process as, as social workers who will socialize children through social emotional learning into the right view of the world, into a utopian consciousness. And this utopian consciousness, according to Friday, is hopeful because if you do it long enough, you can finally reach the ninth stage of consciousness, which is Marxist true consciousness. True consciousness, transcendent communism. So after class consciousness, you have critical consciousness. Friday builds the bridge that says you need utopian consciousness, which is perpetual critical consciousness. And then you will eventually, in the end, arrive at true consciousness. And what he says is, this is, sorry, not he. Now I'm quoting Marx directly. Communism is the positive transcendence of private property as human self-estrangement and therefore as the real appropriation of the human essence by and for man, communism therefore as the complete return of man to himself as a social, that is, human being. So for Marx, to be human means to be communist. You are intrinsically a social being, by which he means a communist, because it's, it occurs at the positive transcendence of private property. And private property, the transcendence of private property is the transcendence of human self-estrangement. He says, this is a return accomplished consciously and embracing the entire wealth of previous development. This communism, so we're talking about true communist consciousness, as fully developed naturalism equals humanism, and as fully developed humanism equals naturalism. It is the genuine solution of the conflict between man and nature and between man and man, the true resolution of the strife between existence and essence, between objectification and self-confirmation, between freedom and necessity, between the individual and the species. Communism is the riddle of history solved and it knows itself to be this solution. That's Karl Marx and the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts from 1844, before he wrote the Confession of Faith. That's the process of conscientization. That's what they're actually walking your children through. That's what they've transformed and stolen education to, to give them. That's the religious revival hope. The goal is to use education to be a conscientization vehicle to walk them through the stages of, hey, did you know that you're probably in some racial, gender, sexual, economic, whatever class? Did you know that's oppressive? Did you know that if it's oppressive, somebody's oppressing you? That means you're in class antagonism. That means there's a conflict. Wait, well, did you know if that's the case, then um, do you realize that you actually are a historical subject who has a special perspective on this, who can then talk about it and bring it about? Well, that only works if you adopt a class consciousness, if you come together in solidarity with your peeps who are like you, who are oppressed like you, or who are oppressed in other ways that you can relate to but aren't identical to you. And then if you do that, what do you have to do? Well, it turns out that it's not them that's oppressing you, it's the system they've constructed. And they don't even necessarily know that they're oppressing you. They might not even be doing it. Systemic racism works without a single racist or a single racist idea or a single racist policy. It just produces racist outcomes. 
That's the line. So it's a system that's actually oppressing you. So you have to be critical of the entire system. That's critical consciousness. And what happens though is if we overthrow this, we are at risk of becoming the problem we created. So we have to do it again, and we have to do it again, and we have to do it again. You can't have any, in fact, Paulo Freire says you can't have a positive vision for where you're going because you'll impose it and that's right wing. You have to just continue to denounce whatever is. So you implement a program at the school, it doesn't work. If it's somebody else's fault, you denounce the program, you just ask for a new program, and you just keep rolling down the track. This is exactly what you see in your school. It doesn't work, it's a disaster, people complain, and then they try to just make up some new program that they have to do, and they, they blame somebody else for why it didn't work. They blame somebody else for why it didn't work. Well, we introduced an equity program, the grades went down, uh, we, or sorry, we, yeah, anti-racist program within the equity program, so we taught anti-racism, grades went down because we were doing political education in place of real education. No, 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 it's not that. It's that we ended up making the schooling less racist, but the tests are still racist, so now we have to get rid of the tests. Not kidding. That's exactly the rationale they, rationale they follow. Oh, well, the tests, we got rid of the tests, but now what it is is that teachers are playing favorites or whatever, so now we have to make sure that we do more re-education training for the teachers. It would be best if we brought in an entire DEI consulting uh, outfit into the school to make sure that it's on board. Well, we need more people who are facilitators to work with the school. In fact, let's not even have curriculum anymore. Let's do social-emotional learning that makes sure that everything in every subject in every part of the kids' lives is all along this. We need more, 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 more put another $6 billion federal honeypot or slush fund or whatever it is for the ability to get this money if you play ball. And the harder you play ball, the more of the money you're entitled to. Yada, yada, yada. This is the exact communist playbook. This is exactly how they operate. And it's because they don't know how. In fact, they're not allowed to know how. But conscientization is about changing the parameters that kids will accept for the world that they are going to live in. It is to make them absolutely radicalized and absolutely easy to radicalize further so that they will take political action every chance they get. As we already heard, because of the theft of education, the subject matter itself is a mediator to true knowledge, to political knowledge, so they're not gonna learn math or reading or anything else. Those are excuses to do political lessons. The math lesson is a mediator to a political lesson. The reading lesson is a mediator to a political lesson. And the goal is to get the children to refuse the existing society, to think it's an existential threat, something that oppresses them, that makes them miserable, that will permanently make them miserable, that will ruin their life's chances, that they don't know how to live in a society because they can't answer fundamental questions for themselves like what is a woman, what is a man, what is a boy, what is a girl, what is an adult, what is a child, what are the facts of my senses telling me, what is an appropriate relationship between these different categories of people look like, what is appropriate for public, what is appropriate for private, should I bring my whole self to work, why is it, I mean it's not that weird I guess to have a sexualized character, a man in a hypersexualized woman's outfit dancing around like a clown and breaking all the rules at school. It says by the way in the Drag Queen Story Hour paper that one of the goals they teach the children is that breaking the rules is necessary and fun. Isn't that great? Good for boundaries. The goal is to get them to refuse the existing society because they can't comprehend it and thus to defer to authorities who will tell them what they're supposed to do so that they can go take activism to transform the world. The goal is to create Marcusian, if you want, or Maoist, if you'd rather, radicals who will tear down and refuse the existing society and demand a different one that's been programmed into them through social emotional learning which is inducing them into an ESG consciousness, environmental social and good governance consciousness, for example. A sustainable and inclusive and resilient future through 17 goals to transform our world, says the United Nations. The goal in Herbert Marcuse's world is to create a biological foundation for socialism. And in my reading, he has a footnote. 
My superpower, I've told you all before, is that I read these people and I believe them. That's it. So he has a footnote and he says, I don't mean biological like biological. I don't mean like literally like genetic. I don't mean like literally eugenics. I mean biological like the level of vital needs. In other words, their ability to cope with the world as it is. So his mission is to make it so that people cannot cope with the, way, the world the way that it is unless it is socialist. He's talking about creating a biological foundation for socialism that will be mediated by interjecting a new rationality, a new morality, a new set of values, and inducing a great refusal of the existing sensibility for a new sensibility. I'm not exaggerating. The chapter one of uh, chapter one's title of uh, essay on liberation is a biological foundation for socialism. Chapter two's title is a new sensibility. And he talks about a new reality, a new rationality for interpreting the new reality, a new uh, set of morals and values for for interacting in that world. And the, the the way that you get that is by interjecting new values into the students or into the, to the people. They have to have, they're already having values introjected into them by the existing society, so we have to interject new values so that they won't be able to cope with the world as it is unless it becomes socialist. And that's the vision he lays out for liberation in 1969. And we live in Herbert Marcuse's world, so that's what we're seeing, education servicing, using Paulo Freire's methods. The goal is to make your children, conscientization, the goal is to make your children activists on behalf of the world that they're being programmed to need. They're being programmed to need the world to be a certain way and that they need to be activists to make sure the world becomes that way. In other words, the goal, as I said early on in the series, is that they are trying to build the new world, the new economic world, the new uh, stakeholder circular economy, the whole new world, and the population to fill it at the same time by creating the need in the children to, to, to live in that world lest they not be able to cope with their day-to-day -day existence. So what do you see when they can't cope? High levels of generalized anxiety, high levels of depression, high levels of suicide, high levels of personality disorders, high levels of failure to adapt, failure to get along, confusion, distraction. And what do you see in the world around you? exactly those things. Are there other causes? Certainly. Social media is probably not great for young brains. Living in the metaverse is probably bad for you. But you're seeing these things because that's what you get when you're inducing people not to be able to live in the world that they're in, to accept the challenges of the world and to take them on in realistic ways that address reality, but rather point them in the direction of a utopia that doesn't, and by definition, cannot exist. So that's what's happening in education. The conscientization has replaced education. It's been stolen from you and your children so that they can be turned into, as I said, activists on behalf of the world that they're being programmed to believe that they can't live without. And that is going to be, as we turn to in the next lecture, facilitated by social emotional learning in order to create the sustainable world dictated by environmental, social, and governance rules set up by the grand global communists of today. Thank you.